0: Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Riding a growing wave of discontentment within the Catholic Church and its leadership guided by the Pope, a German priest, theologian, author, and hymn writer by the name of Martin Luther lit a match of protest that gradually grew into a bonfire that changed the world. Join me as we unravel the truth, myth, legend, traditions, and mysteries surrounding this titan of history which helps explain the relationship between religion, commerce, and conquest at the beginning of European exploration and colonization of the North American continent. Pastor Lance Rolston of the History of the Christian Church podcast has graciously agreed to share with us his unique views on this remarkable period in history.
1: When Martin Luther tacked his revolutionary list of exceptions to current church practice and belief, to the council church door in the German town of Wittenberg, we're faced with the realization that the Reformation embraced many more people than the popular telling of history enumerates. Many more. Who do we think of when we think of the Reformation? Martin Luther and John Calvin are the first two that most would name. Then, with a bit more searching of the gray matter, maybe Philip Melanchthon, Martin Bucer, and Ulrich Zwingli. There are, of course, dozens more notables who played important roles in the drama that was the Reformation. A little background on the situation in Germany is a good idea. As moderns, we're used to thinking of history in terms of nation-states. Even as we think back to ancient times we tend to cast the dominant empires as just very old versions of nation-states. That, despite the fact that the modern nation-state of Western civilization is a relatively recent invention. We need to exercise caution as we review the history of Renaissance Europe and the period of the Reformation because it was this period of time that helped set the political climate for the eventual emergence of the modern world with its nearly ubiquitous carving up of the globe into nations with clearly defined borders. Voltaire once said, quote, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy, Roman, nor an empire, unquote. Yet that's what we call that collection of principalities that formed a loose political collection from the 9th to the 17th centuries. In the 16th century, the Holy Roman Empire was politically centralized in name only, It was composed of several politically different regions that put a significant check on the emperor's power. It was this division of power that made the Reformation possible and helps explain why it took root in Germany rather than in some place like France or Spain. The long road to reform makes clear there had been many attempts at reform of the church prior to Luther and the early 16th century, but none had the Reformation's success precisely because they usually took place in areas that were governed by a single monarch dedicated to Rome. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was also Rome's guy, but he only held his office due to the endorsement of seven German prince electors who regularly differed from him on various issues. These powerful electors and the noble houses that they were scions of had debated for years about the desirability of a break with Rome. Martin Luther was able to succeed where others failed, precisely because he arrived at a time when enough of these electors had grown fed up with Rome's meddling, the emperor was politically weak, and the common people universally recognized the corruption of the church's upper echelon. Martin Luther's political region was Saxony, ruled by the powerful and well-regarded elector Frederick III, known as Frederick the Wise. His successors, both of them named John, followed Frederick's support for Luther. The powerful Landgrave, that is Count Philip of Hesse, which was nestled west of Saxony, east of the Rhine, was another avid supporter of the Reformation. That support will play a key role in later developments for Luther. The emperor walked a political tightrope as he sought to balance the demands of these tetchy electors, dozens of lesser principalities, and the growing number of politically powerful free imperial cities that were ruled by councils that often acted as sovereign governments. As if that wasn't enough, Charles V also had war on multiple fronts to deal with. France in the west, the Ottomans in the east, and Italy to the south. The Reformation leaders realized that the time was ripe for them to sever ties with Rome since the emperor needed their support to deal with the external threats. It was a political perfect storm for a religious movement to emerge. In the summer of 1520, a document bearing an impressive seal circulated throughout Germany in search of a remote figure. It began, quote, Arise, O Lord, and judge your cause. A wild boar has invaded your vineyard, unquote. The document was what's called a papal bull, named after that impressive seal, or bulla, bearing the Pope's insignia. It took three months to reach the wild boar that it referred to a German monk named Martin Luther, who'd created quite a stir in Germany. But well before it arrived in Wittenberg, where Luther taught, he knew its contents. Forty-one of the things that he'd been announcing were condemned as, quote, heretical, scandalous, false, and offensive to pious ears, seducing simple minds and repugnant to Catholic truth, unquote. The papal bull called on Luther to repent and publicly repudiate his errors or face dreadful consequences. Luther received his copy on the 10th of October. At the end of his 60-day grace period in which he was supposed to surrender, he led a crowd of eager students outside Wittenberg and burned copies of the canon law and works of several medieval theologians. Included in the paper that fed the flames was a copy of the bull condemning him. That was his answer. He said, quote, They burned my books, so I burn theirs, unquote. That fire outside Wittenberg in December of 1520 was a fitting symbol of the defiance toward the Roman church raging throughout Germany. Born in 1483 in Eisleben in Saxony to a miner, Luther attended school at Magdeburg under the Brethren of the Common Life. He then went to university at Erfurt, where he learned Greek, graduating with an MA in 1505. His plan was to become a lawyer, but the story goes that one day he was caught in a thunderstorm. A bolt of lightning knocked him to the ground. Terrified, he cried out to the patron saint of miners, Saint Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. To his parents' dismay, Luther kept the vow, Two weeks later, he entered the Augustinian Monastery at Erfurt, where he became a dedicated brother. Some years later, he said about his being a monk, I kept the rule so strictly that I may say that if a monk ever got to heaven by sheer monkery, it was I. If I had kept up any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Luther pushed his body to health-cracking rigors of austerity. Sometimes engaged in a total fast, that is no food or water, for three days, He would sleep without a blanket in the winter. In the Erfurt monastery, he did further theological study and was made a priest in 1507. When he transferred to Wittenberg in 1508, he began teaching moral theology, the sentences of Peter Lombard, and the scriptures. A visit to Rome on Augustinian business in 1510 opened Luther's eyes to the corruption that was so prevalent among the higher clergy there. When he returned to Wittenberg in 1512, he earned his doctorate in theology and was appointed to the chair of biblical studies, which he occupied for the rest of his life. But throughout this time, Luther was consumed by guilt and the sense of his sinfulness. While the majesty and glory of God inspired most people, it tormented Luther because he saw himself as a wretched sinner, alienated from an unapproachably holy God. While performing his first Mass, Luther later reported, I was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the Divine Majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God? No amount of penance nor counsel from his peers could still Luther's conviction that he was a miserable, doomed sinner. Although his confessor counseled him to love God, Luther one day burst out, Love God! I don't love him, I hate him! Luther found the love that he sought in studying the Word of God. Assigned to the Chair of Biblical Studies at the recently opened Wittenberg University, he became fascinated with the words of Christ from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Luther found an odd solace in the idea that Christ was forsaken. Luther was a sinner. Christ wasn't. The answer had to lie, Luther intuited, in Christ's identification with sinful humans. He began to ponder the possibility that Jesus endured estrangement from God for us. A new and revolutionary picture began to develop in Luther's restless soul. Finally, in 1515, while pondering Paul's epistle to the Romans, Luther came upon the words of chapter 1, verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. This was the key that turned the lock and opened the door to everything else that would follow. He said, quote, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Unquote. Luther saw it clearly now. Man is saved only by his faith in the merit of Christ's sacrifice. The cross alone removes sin and saves from the grasp of the devil. Luther had come to his famous doctrine of justification by faith alone. He saw how sharply it clashed with the Roman Church's doctrine of justification by faith and good works, the demonstration of faith through virtuous acts, acceptance of church dogma, and participation in the sacraments. The implications of Luther's discovery were enormous. If salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, the intercession of priests was unnecessary. Faith formed and nurtured by the word of God, written and preached, requires neither monks, masses, nor prayers to the saints. The mediation of a church magisterium crumbles. Now, At first, Luther had no idea where his spiritual discovery would lead. It took a flagrant abuse of church finances to move him to the center of rebellion in Germany and into a revolutionary position regarding papal authority. The sale of indulgences introduced during the Crusades remained a major source of church income, especially that which was destined for Rome. The theology behind indulgences is rather complex, but the upshot is this. Jesus and the saints have done far more good than they need for themselves, and have lived lives that produce an excess of righteousness that others can draw on. The church hierarchy, and specifically the Pope and his agents, they're able to open what's called the treasury of merit, all this excess goodness has gone into, and assign it to less worthy individuals. So in exchange for a meritorious work, like making a pilgrimage, or going on a crusade, or making a financial contribution, the church offered the sinner exemption from acts of penance. All too often, the peddlers of indulgences made them seem a sort of magic, as though a contribution automatically earned the one seeking it a reward, regardless of the condition of their soul. Sorrow for sin was conveniently overlooked, and some even implied that you could buy permission to sin before committing it. All of this deeply troubled Luther. So, armed with his new understanding of faith, he began to criticize the theology of indulgences in his sermons. He ramped things up in 1517 when the Dominican John Tetzel was preaching throughout Germany on behalf of a Vatican fundraising campaign so they could complete the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. In exchange for a contribution, Tetzel boasted, he would provide donors with an indulgence that would even apply beyond the grave and free souls from purgatory. Tetzel was a clever sloganeer who understood the power of marketing. He came up with a catchy ditty. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. To Luther, Tetzel's preaching was more than bad theology, it bordered on blasphemy. Irked by Tetzel's fleecing of the common people and provoked by his studies in scripture, Luther drew up 95 propositions for theological debate, and on October 31st, of 1517, following university custom, he posted them on the castle church door at Wittenberg, the place that people put public notices. Among other things, Luther's List argued that indulgences can't remove guilt, they do not apply to purgatory, and are harmful because they create a false sense of security. Little did anyone know that the spark had just been lit that would fire the Reformation. Within a short time, Tetzel's fellow Dominicans in Germany denounced Luther to Rome as guilty of preaching dangerous doctrines. A Vatican theologian issued a series of counter-theses to Luther's List, claiming that anyone who criticized indulgences was guilty of heresy. At first, Luther was willing to accept a final verdict from Rome but he quickly shifted to the position that his critics show him in Scripture that he was wrong. As his appeal to the Bible grew, he began to question the doctrine of purgatory. During an eight-day debate in 1519 with church theologian Jan Eck at Leipzig, Luther said, A council may sometimes err. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. Luther had moved from his first conviction, that salvation was by faith in Christ alone, to a second. Scripture, not popes or councils is the standard for Christian faith and behavior. Jan Eck didn't miss Luther's spiritual resemblance to Jan Hus. After the Leipzig debate, he asked Rome to declare Luther a heretic. Luther put his case before the German people by publishing a series of pamphlets. In his Address to the Nobility of the German Nation, Martin called on the princes to correct abuses within the church, to strip bishops and abbots of their wealth and worldly power, and to create a national German church. In his work titled, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, Luther spoke not to the papal schism of a century and a half before, but how the doctrine of justification by faith had reformed his doctrine of the church. He argued that Rome's sacramental system held Christians captive. He attacked the papacy for depriving individual Christians of their freedom to approach God directly by faith without the mediation of priests. He said that in order for a sacrament to be valid, it had to be instituted by Christ and exclusively Christian. By these tests, Luther could find no justification for five of the Roman Catholic sacraments. He retained only baptism and the Lord's Supper and placed even those within a community of believing Christians rather than in the hands of an exclusive priesthood. All this had sweeping ramifications for the Church. It brushed aside the traditional view of the church as a sacred hierarchy headed by the Pope and returned to the early Christian view of a community of Christian believers in which all believers are priests called to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. In his third pamphlet, published in 1520, The Freedom of a Christian Man, Luther set forth in a conciliatory but firm voice his views on Christian behavior and salvation. This work is probably the best introduction to his central ideas. He wrote, quote, Good works do not make a man good, but a good man does good works, unquote. On the eve of his excommunication from the Roman Church, Luther removed the necessity of monasticism by stressing that the essence of Christian living lies in serving God in one's calling, whether that's secular or religious. All useful callings, he said, are equally sacred in God's eyes. In June of 1520, Pope Leo X issued his bull condemning Luther giving him 60 days to turn from his heretical course. The bonfire at Wittenberg made clear Luther's intent, so his excommunication followed. In January 1521, the Pope declared him a heretic. The problem now fell into the hands of the young emperor Charles V, who was under oath to defend the church and remove heresy from the empire. Remember that all church hierarchy can do is examine those who are suspected of heresy and declare them innocent or guilty. Punishment was not the duty of priests or monks. That was for the civil magistrate to carry out. So, when Luther was declared a dangerous heretic and booted from the church, it fell to the emperor to carry out his execution. He summoned Luther to the imperial assembly at Worms, called a Diet, to give an account of his writings. Charles V understood how highly charged the political situation around Luther was since he'd become the hero for a good part of the German nobility that Charles desperately needed in his contest with France and the Turks. The emperor wanted to make sure that Luther was a verifiable heretic, and not just someone that Rome wanted to get rid of. While the exact record of the Diet at Worms is a little cloudy, it seems that one day, as Luther was shown a table full of books purported to be his, wherein his radical ideas were expressed, he asked if they were indeed his, and if he stood by all that he had written in them. He hesitated and showed some uncertainty. Now, whether his hesitation was due to his concern that maybe there were some books there he'd not authored, or that some of his earlier writings may not have been as an accurate reflection of his present views, or that with the emperor watching him he was being faced with a potentially life-ending challenge, we don't know. In any case, he was allowed to retire for the day where he reflected on what he was really being challenged by, and emerged to stand before the assembly on the morrow where he once again insisted that only biblical authority would sway him. In a famous and oft-quoted line, he stated, quote, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither honest nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Unquote. Bold. Courageous. But Charles V wasn't impressed. He declared Luther an outlaw. He pronounced, quote, This devil in the habit of a monk has brought together ancient errors into one stinking puddle as an invented new ones, unquote. Luther had 21 days for a safe passage to Saxony before the sentence fell. It never came. Luther was saved from arrest and death by Duke Frederick the Wise, the Prince of Saxony, whose domains included Wittenberg. The Duke gave Luther sanctuary at his lonely Wartburg Castle. Disguised as a minor nobleman and given the alias Junker George, Luther stayed for a year. He used the time to translate the New Testament into German, an important first step toward reshaping public and private worship in Germany.
0: Next time, we continue our deep dive into the life and times of this 16th century German monk and reformer whose efforts to alter the theology and practice of the Roman Catholic Church launched the Protestant Reformation, a form of Christianity that inspired early generations of men and women to cross a perilous ocean with their few belongings, hopes, dreams, and determination, and travel to the shores of North America. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying visuals, including maps, charts, timelines, photos, illustrations, and diagrams. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.